You are listening to episode 49 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Tyler Liu. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to the Tennis Files podcast. We're here with Tyler Liu, who is a uh, player, uh, tennis player at Yale University. He's actually graduating in less than a week. Uh, Tyler's a fantastic tennis player. He's played a number one for Yale uh, ever since he started as a freshman there in 2013. Uh, I believe he was ranked around uh, 64 in the country this year. Uh, and Tyler's also defeated a bunch of uh, top 40 and even, uh, I believe, top 10 ranked college tennis players during his tenure at Yale. Tyler was also ranked as high as number three in the SoCal region and number 24 in the nation uh, in the USTA. And he was a blue chip recruit, which is uh, pretty much the highest level possible as a junior. Uh, Tyler is also a nice guy from what I've seen and heard. Uh, he received the Super National Clay Court uh, Championship Sportsmanship Award. Um, so, Tyler, I just uh, really am excited to have you on the show and I appreciate you making time for us today. Hey, not a problem. My pleasure. <laughs> I'm excited to be on the show, too. Uh, thanks a lot, Tyler. And I also have to give uh, a shout out to your brother, Austin, too. Uh, I definitely appreciate Austin uh, is contacting me and, and letting me know uh, about you. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy that we've uh, we've connected. Um, so thank you, Austin. But I just want to begin by asking you, Tyler, um, what sports or activities did you actually do as a young kid before you uh, took up playing tennis? Yeah, so my mom actually uh, brought me to some tennis lessons early on when I was little, and I, and I uh, hated the sport. So I was uh, big into basketball, baseball, soccer, swimming, and then uh, I was also big into music. I spent a lot of time on uh, piano and violin growing up as well. Nice. Did you have any uh, particular like uh, favorites uh, between all those activities? Yeah, uh, I was I was pretty into violin. So I, uh, I was focusing on violin a lot. And then also, actually, I wanted to play college basketball for quite a while. And uh, eventually, as I started getting older, I realized I was a little bit short for uh, college basketball. And so that's when I actually picked up tennis and uh, started focusing on tennis. I got you. That's pretty cool, Tyler. And yeah, we've we've definitely had some players uh, on the show, like Tread Huey, who I mentioned a lot because he's a friend of mine. And he played like uh, baseball and other sports, and he found that it actually transferred well uh, to tennis in certain respects. So do you think that any of the activities you uh, did before you took up tennis uh, kind of helped your tennis game? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, especially with stuff like soccer and basketball, just getting your feet moving and making sure that you're on balance, I think, makes a, uh, makes a big difference when you're trans- translating into tennis. And as far as baseball, just the rotational power that you need on every stroke of tennis, uh, obviously that, uh, the rotational power is present in baseball as well. Yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely helpful there with the, the background you have in other uh, activities. So, And so obviously I, I love asking people about the very first memory of of hitting a tennis ball so what was that like for you if you can remember that far back uh uh, i mean i'd go out occasionally and hit and hit with my uh my brother and my dad but i think the first time i really remember hitting a tennis ball and playing tennis was probably when i first started playing tennis around like 12 years old and it was my brother and his uh his high school friends and one of his high school friends little brother and i just went out there to like play around and knock the ball around with them a little bit. So I think that was, that was my first memory. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible that, you know, you started at 12 years old and then, you know, here you are, you played number one for Yale, uh, which is, I mean, a big deal. And then now you're, as we'll talk about later, uh, you know, going to go pro and things like that. Um, but was it uh, difficult in any respects, like starting as a 12-year-old kid? Like, I don't know if maybe you had to hit against, like, much younger players when you first started or, like, how, how was that experience for you starting a little later? Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a struggle, and um, I don't think it was necessarily an issue that I had to play with younger kids because I, I did. But I mean, like the younger kids are better than me; they beat up on me all the time, so it was still good practice for me. So it really made no difference. But I think 
um, what I struggled with starting later was that until you get to the 18th division, a lot of players will move up. So, for example, if you're 12 years old, but you're a very good 12 year old, 12 years old, maybe you've been playing 14 tournaments since you were 11, mm-hmm. and so on and so on. Obviously, until you get to the 18th division, there's nothing, uh, nothing higher than that. So, um, I did struggle a little bit in trying to catch up with ranking. Like, I felt like towards the end of the 14s, you know, I was starting to play a little bit better, but I was also competing against people who weren't necessarily my age. So it was tough to gauge uh, my level and where I needed to be and where I was. And so I was really just competing against like good 12 year olds basically. And then uh, same thing with the 16s, people already had moved on. And it wasn't until the end of 16s and the 18s that I really got a good, um, a good look at how I compared with, uh, compared, compared with my peers. Yeah, you definitely do see a lot of uh, players kind of like playing up in their age division once they win a tournament or two. And I remember, um, I think one of Sharapova's coaches just saying how, like, to some respect, in some respects, like, you know, you should, uh, you know, when you play up, like, you don't really have much pressure. So it's good to once in a while at least play your own age division every now or then. But getting a bit off track here, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, about like your progression also with your practice. Uh, uh, and your training, because like I, obviously, like in the beginning, you you know you played with beginners and stuff. But when was it? Would you say that you started practicing really seriously and and you know with like uh, tougher players and stuff like that? Um, honestly, probably since I first started playing. Because mm-hmm. when I first started, the, the reason I first started playing was my brother. Whatever my brother did, I basically wanted to copy and do better than him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he. He picked up tennis because our local high school, University High School, was the number one nation at the time. And so obviously it's kind of a cool thing if you're on the tennis team at the high school. And so he picked up tennis. And so therefore, when I was in seventh grade, I decided to pick up tennis as well. And so I had the same goal as him, trying to uh, make the make the high school team. And so ever since I picked up a racket, I was kind of serious about it and had a goal and knew what I wanted, basically. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Austin, and I guess another like memory question, I guess. What, when did you actually play your, your first tournament and kind of what was that like for you? Uh, I played my, so I played a 12 satellite in Southern California, just some tiny tournament. And uh, I distinctly remember just being absolutely destroyed in the, uh, the second round by, by some guy. I won the, I won the first match. It was super close, maybe like, Seven six two six seven six or something like that, and the next round I just played some guy and just got absolutely tooled, and I was like, damn, like <laughs> I have a lot, a lot of work to do, but I, I want to compete with people, especially since it was like a satellite of the time. Right, right, and you know, I mean, the first experience competing or in tournaments sometimes is like make or break for players sometimes you know a lot a lot of players if they don't do well they just quit and stuff but i mean you you talked about this a tiny bit a second ago but can you talk a little bit more about like your your feelings like when you lost like what was your mindset like moving forward uh i think this is another area perhaps i didn't touch on earlier that um playing sports previously was a was a big help for me because uh Obviously, I lost. I think it was like one and one or one and two or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I I wasn't too disappointed with it because I knew that he was very clearly better than he deserved to win that day. So I, I didn't have any issue with it. And I guess maybe because I had played so many sports uh, growing up and I had a naturally competitive attitude, I just decided, okay, well, he's better than me now. Um, I guess we'll see each other in like a year or in two years. And hopefully after putting in a putting it work for a year or two years, then we'll play again. And next time I'll be the next one. one, one. So I wasn't, I wasn't too disappointed. It was more motivated. Than that, that's really an amazing attitude for, for you, especially at, at that age to, um, you know, to just be motivated and, and know that you, you know, you're realistic and that you knew that your opponent was better, but that you, you're competitive and you, you'd work hard and, and meet him again. I mean, that's one of the, the most important traits, uh, being competitive. So, Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I mean, you mentioned uh, about like trying out for high school and, and Austin actually told me that you didn't make it, uh, the team your first year, right? So, I mean, how, what, what was your mindset when that happened? Uh, again, disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, I, t- technically, technically I made the team, but I just wasn't on the varsity team. Uh, gotcha. And um, so being, obviously making the varsity team was uh was a little bit of a challenge, especially since we had so many good players. 
we had uh, oftentimes we had like two star recruits who are like aren't, they're like still good players. They're uh, they like are not on the uh, not on the varsity team for us. So I was disappointed, but again, if anything, it was just motivating for me and. I almost felt kind of slighted by the high school. And I was like, okay, you know, like next year I'm going to come out and I'm going to be even better and they have no choice except to take the varsity team, basically. Wow, I love that. I love that. And that's, uh, didn't uh, I think Michael Jordan, he, uh, or one of those guys didn't make their team the first year too. Is that right? I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah, it was Jordan. Okay. <laughs> All right, thanks for that. Um, and I was, I'm curious too, like what exactly was the structure of the tryout? Like did you just narrowly miss it or like, what? I mean, what did they do? Did you just play like other players or, or what? There wasn't really a structure. It was, um, we actually had a, we had a lot of people try out. I think our team each year between varsity and JV was probably like 50 to 60 players. So it was a, it was a lot of kids trying out. And it wasn't really a structured trial. You just kind of went out and hit the ball basically for three days or so. And the coach would watch you and decide how you look, look at if you play tournaments, look at your tournament results, stuff like that. So there wasn't really a necessary, uh, necessarily a strict structure on how the tryouts went. It was kind of just based on how the coaches, uh, how the coaches felt. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And, um, you know, obviously you talk about each time you, uh, lost, you, you got motivated and then you, uh, you know, you, you, your goal was to um, persevere the next time around, but what kind of specifically did you change uh, at least, you know, when you didn't make the, the uh, high school team in terms of like your tennis training or routine or anything like that? Um, actually, I don't really remember changing very much. I, my philosophy or at least the philosophy that was, uh, implemented in my training regimen by uh, the coaches that I had growing up was always pretty much the same where uh, I always, I was, I've always feel like I've been a hard worker. And so work ethic was never really an issue, but my coaches, I'm lucky enough that my coaches made a very big effort to try and make sure that I always hit big and went for big shots. And obviously that's not exactly the most ideal type of game for the 12s and the 14s, just because no, you're not strong enough. You can't hit the ball early enough. Or hit the ball big enough to get the to get the ball by the kids. And so, um, but they they were very adamant about it. And so I stuck with it. And then uh, it definitely it definitely paid off later. So I don't I don't think I necessarily changed very much. I just I just continued playing my game and uh, hope that once I got older and got stronger, that it would uh, that it would manifest itself with better results. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important concept right there, just kind of like going for the long game and, with your, you know, going after your long-term goals. Because a lot of times in, in juniors, I mean, you're obviously definitely right that you've got these players who just will just, like, get every ball back and grind. And obviously that's, you know, great, but then they're not thinking about, like, oh, you know, like, when I grow up and stuff, I'm going to have to be able to uh, have a, you know, attacking game or be aggressive and, like, finish points and volley properly. So... I mean that's that's fantastic that you had that sort of uh sort of vision. And so I'm curious about like kind of where you trained or did you did you train at um this particular like uh tennis facility or was it more like just like uh, hitting on public courts like how, what was that like for you around the, you know the high school age and stuff? Yeah, it was always uh, it was always hitting on public courts. So there were a lot of academies. So I grew up in Irvine uh, and nice. there are a lot of academies in Irvine, but I never really attended any of them because I always, school was always my number one priority. Mm. And, you know, you go to these academies and you'll be there for three hours a day. And yeah, you'll get in some decent practice at the academy, but for the three hours you day, uh, the three hours that you're there per day, you know, maybe like 45 minutes of it, you're just standing around because there's six kids on the court and something like that. Mm. And so it was never, I never really went to an academy. I always was like, uh, I'm going to hit one hour or hit one and a half hours with like, a friend or a hitting partner or something like that and just make the one or one and a half hours very intense and try and get the most out of it instead of going to an academy for X number of hours a day. That's fantastic, Tyler. And I really like hearing that because, I mean, that kind of shows to a lot of players that you don't necessarily have to, like, go to some, you know, amazing academy in order to be uh, a top, you know, elite player, you know, in, in college and things like that, like uh, Tyler did at that point. Uh, and, and so, I mean, did you also have, like, a... A private uh, coach as well that you would take lessons from every now and then. Yeah, I actually, actually cycled through uh, quite a bit of coaches, but <laughs> yeah, I always had a I had a private coach, and then I would have a hitting partner who's just like um, a very clean, solid hitter, former pro that I'd hit with maybe 
once a week, uh, twice a week if the, if there was no test that week or something like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, um, you talked a bit about like your, your rise to the top of the junior rankings, but, um, at what point, uh, what age group did you start reaching kind of like, you know, I guess the top, um, top 10 or yeah, top 10 in uh, SoCal? Uh, top 10 in SoCal would be, I guess at the end of 16s, I was top 10 in SoCal for the 16s. But again, it was tough for me to really justify to myself that I was top 10 because there were so many good 16-year-old players that already lost their 16s ranking because they had moved out to 18s a year or two earlier already. So I, I guess by ranking-wise, 16s, but I, I don't think I was 16. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that's I mean it's an amazing accomplishment anyway. And um, as far as um, you know, reaching the top, rankings uh, what would you attribute to, to to helping you like reach you know reach such a high ranking uh if you would like if you could characterize it in in terms of like i guess you know what you did or your training or mindset or anything like that uh i, I think first and foremost i have to probably thank my mom for a big a big portion of it like um she was one of those moms that She'd go do a part-time job so she could help pay for tennis. And when she came back, she would outline every single tournament for the year. And so you see like those USTA tournaments, like, oh, like a tournament that's eight months from now. There's one person signed up. I know it's time of the That's because my mom was always on top of everything. I had the hotel in place. So I honestly, like when I was playing tennis and training, I didn't have to worry about anything except for going out there and working hard, basically. So that was a, uh, a big relief on my, uh, my mental strength. But right. as far as... Yeah, she, she did amazing. Uh, but as far as like my physical training regimen, again, I probably have to uh, say the biggest thing was my coaches making sure that um, I started big and then learned to control it instead of starting to control it and trying to expand it. And that was that was the overarching philosophy in in my uh, in my game, where the coaches would basically insist that it's always easier to rein something in than it is to pick something and try and expand it out. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And so I guess when they were telling you this, like, I guess I'm curious about like what your game was like, um, you know, in the 16s and 18s. I mean, was it pretty much something like, you know, if you get a short ball, like just, you know, hit out on it or like what what were they kind of telling you to do? I mean, maybe more specifically, if, if you can be and as far as like, you know, being aggressive and stuff. Uh, well, I guess before I get to the 16s and 18s, there was actually a period of time between the 12s and 14s, I think, where uh, I lost first round nine times in a row because I was like, I would just, I'd basically just slap every ball and just go for winners on every single ball. And obviously it's not a, uh, a winning strategy. Um, but that was basically my game, honestly, through the 12s, 14s, even through the 16s, where I would just take every ball and just slam it as, not necessarily as hard as I could, but pretty pretty close to as hard as I could and, you know, go for, try and go for a big target, but still try and hit a, uh, hit a big heavy ball every single time, every single time I got a chance. And it wasn't until towards the end of the 16s uh, that I really started to try and control and started picking and choosing where I, uh, where I decided to, uh, to unleash on the ball. But I think that it was very imperative in my training to basically go after every single ball because it's, at the end of the day, it's tough to mentally do it when it's like five all in the third set, 30 all. You know, a lot of people are just going to stand back and just push basically or try and grind. It's like, oh, I'm, you know, like, I don't want to make a mistake. I'm just going to wait for my opponent to give it to me. But because I had spent so many years going after the ball on every single shot, my natural game was still to step in and try and go for something. I think that made the, uh, the biggest difference for me physically and mentally. Yeah, I think that's huge, Tyler. And so when you say of rein it in, I mean, was it, were you like being more selective about when you went for it or were you like adding more topspin to your shots? Were you going for bigger targets? Like what, you know, was it all of that or? Uh, yeah, I think it's all combined. I think it's just, uh, I think all three of those categories just fall under a general category of decision-making where, Oh, am I on balance or, Oh, like, do I feel like I can have a little bit more time with this ball? It's all based on feel. Um, when you see the ball coming over, coming over the net. Cause I mean, you you can feel if the ball sits up a little bit, or you can feel if uh, the ball is like a little bit higher than it usually is, and so it was just learning to to uh, make the smart decision based on how I felt on the shot. That's fantastic, and um, obviously you had you know very distinguished uh, junior career, um, like we mentioned, number three in SoCal, number twenty four in the in the nation. 
what was your proudest moment in your junior tennis career? Uh, my proudest moment, my proudest moment was probably when, uh, when I realized that I could basically choose whichever Ivy I want to go to. Cause that was, that was, that was always my end goal. I mean, not to, not to stereotype Asian families or anything, but <laughs> the end goal was basically to use tennis to get into an Ivy League college and then get a good degree and then get a good job, et cetera. And so I think there was a certain point when, uh, when I was basically a high five star, or maybe I just turned into a blue chip or something where, I kind of realized that I basically had my pick of whichever Ivy college I wanted to go to. And that was kind of like, I guess the climax of however many years I had been training and that was the end goal. And I had finally achieved it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an amazing achievement going to, going to Yale. Um, and so also kind of a similar question, uh, what was your biggest victory, uh, that you can remember in the juniors? Uh, biggest victory. Honestly, I I was kind of one of those players in juniors where I would never, I would rarely lose to someone I shouldn't, but I would also not often beat someone that was very, uh, that was ranked to a, lot, a lot above me. So I don't, I don't remember that many big wins necessarily, but I think the two that would stand out probably was beating TJ Pura in the 16th clays back when he was still uh, like top 10 in, the, in our class. And then also at Kalamazoo when I beat Jonathan Ho, who was, a blue chip a year older than me and then that was already kind of late into the tournament so it's a big deal just to get through it get through an extra round that's awesome yeah those are big tournaments um and so now let's uh talk a bit about the transition to college i mean there's definitely some players and parents who have had to deal with uh you know this transition and picking colleges so what was the recruiting process for you like uh when you were an upperclassman in high school um I think the recruiting process for me was a little bit different than your average uh, than your average tennis player because I had a very clear idea in my mind of what I wanted, which was basically to go to an Ivy League school. And so I was contacted by some um, some non-Ivies like like Georgia Tech or UCLA or stuff like that. But I basically told them straight off the bat that I I wasn't interested and that I was only interested in Ivy League schools. And so for the majority of my recruiting process, I basically only spoke to maybe like half the Ivy League schools. Nice, man. That's, that's, that's awesome. And so uh, how and why did you end up choosing uh, Yale over the other, uh, you know, big name Ivy schools? Yeah, so um, I obviously when I visited Yale, I had a great time. But I think another uh, another big, big factor in it was that there was a player named John Huang who was exactly four years older than me. And he actually grew up in Irvine too and went to the same high school and also played number one for Yale. And uh, he was a good friend of mine from back home. And we'd, uh, we'd hit when I was, uh, whenever he was back in college. And honestly, like, I think he basically just brainwashed me to choosing <laughs> Yale for like, for two years. It was like, Oh, Yale, Yale, Yale. It's like, Yale is the best at everything Yale. And that was, that was pretty much it. But so I already went into the recruiting process with a certain inclination towards Yale, and then I went to the, I went on my visit, and I had a great time with the guys. All the guys there were super, super cool, and uh, the facility is amazing, and so that pretty much sealed it. Nice. So I'm going to have to uh, check with John and see if he got any sort of recruiting fee for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> illegal. <laughs> um, no, that's fantastic, and um, yeah, it's a tough one, but which of the schools, you know, if you weren't – quote unquote brainwashed by John, like which of the schools, other schools that recruited you, uh, would you, you think you have gone to? Uh, I was very close to choosing Dartmouth and Princeton. Mm. And the reason, the reason behind it, um, the reason behind those two schools was the coaches for Dartmouth. It's a relatively new coach, Chris Drake, but mm. I, I think Chris Drake is one of the best coaches in the Ivy League and has taken Dartmouth and done amazing things with the team and they've, and then the other school, Princeton, um, uh, the coach there when I was getting recruited at least was Glenn Michibata, mm. who was a, uh, obviously a fantastic player. He was one of the world in doubles. And uh, he mm. took a really big liking to my game and thought I could, I could be a great college player. And we had a good relationship. And I was, I was very close to choosing Princeton just because of his influence. But unfortunately, just before I... Um, just before my senior year, uh, he got switched out for a different coach who's also very good, but just I didn't have enough time to, to really talk to him and build a relationship with him. 
Right, right. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's very interesting uh, to hear that. And, and so do you, I don't know if you remember, but which of the schools that recruited you, I'm just curious, like had the highest ranked program at the time? Uh, the highest ranked program would probably, probably be either Columbia or Harvard. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I talked to Dave Fish like a few episodes ago. He's uh, a good guy there. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah. During your time at Yale, I mean, obviously you did a ton of like training and had amazing experiences and things like that and led the team. But which part of your game do you think you improved the most um, under the coaching and training with the players while at Yale? Um, I think I kind of chose a different facet of my game every year. So it's a little bit hard to uh, select a, a single part of my game that improved the most. Like I think my, I think the senior year, the biggest difference for me has been an improved serve and improved returns. And I think that uh, my freshman year, I made a big deal to try and make my backhand more solid. And then in the middle two years, I was trying to uh, make my forehand a little cleaner and reduce a couple unforced errors. So I, it was, I kind of, it was kind of a step-by-step process where I picked one thing and then focused on it, worked on it, tried to solve it. And then once that was done, then I picked a new thing and worked on it. So I, I wouldn't say that there's been a particular facet of my game that has improved the most so i love that you you know segment it every year and have like a specific thing you want to work on instead of just going out there and just hitting balls um you know i've actually uh surveyed my audience and just always curious about uh you know what they want to improve upon and it's uh in a lot of cases they're serves i was just wondering if again if you can remember like when you were you picked one year uh at what one season to improve your serve were there a, a couple like things or maybe tips you could give us that actually did help you improve your serve a lot more? Uh, yeah. So actually the serve has, um, I'm okay. I guess I'll start off with my height. I'm not a, a very tall individual. I'm five, uh, five foot eight, five foot nine on a really good day. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, one of the coaches that I worked with, or I guess a couple of coaches that I worked with in juniors was, uh, Elliot Telcher and the mm. Dents. Nice. And obviously, all three of them are are very accomplished, and especially the dense, um, really, really focused on serving. And so that was a uh, that was a big deal. And it's, I think also coming from the fact that I played baseball growing up, and it's very the motion of throwing a ball is very similar to serving. I always naturally had a pretty live arm, and I could always hit very big serves. It was pace was never an issue with me. Mm. But I think that um, I think what has helped me the most with my serve over the years is something that. Um, Taylor Dent basically said where he said that when you toss the ball up, you want to try and visualize yourself hitting the top of the ball up. Mm. And if you think about it, literally, it doesn't make too much sense because if you hit the top of the ball, no matter how you hit it, the ball is going to bounce straight to the ground. But the whole point is that you physically cannot reach the top of the ball, but in trying to do so, you'll snap over the ball and come over it. And then by trying to hit the ball up, you'll naturally use your legs a little bit more to push and get that extra little leverage and power off the ground. And that, I think it's a good way to visualize to try and add more pace. But I think the most important aspect of that piece of advice is the fact that it makes your options in a match very binary in the sense that if the ball is going long, you know that I'm just going to try and hit even more on top of the ball. And if the ball is going in the net, then I'm just going to try and swing the ball, uh, swing up a little bit more. So it's really like, oh, I hit this, A. I hit this, B. And so it makes it very easy to adjust in practice and adjust in matches to, to try and improve your serve on the fly. So I think that I think that single piece of advice was the most important thing for my serve over the years. Well, that's awesome. Uh, uh, Tyler, I really appreciate that. Definitely you guys go out there and uh, try that out and then uh, you know comment in the show notes. Uh, uh, you know how that went for you and so i mean this this tip about like trying to hit the top of the ball up like that that worked for you on like flat serves and also like uh slice and top spin just like the same you could you could uh use that tip on all of your serves uh it was more for flat serves and top spin and kick serves for the slice serve i try and think of i try and think of just basically slicing the outside i'm trying to cut the fuzz off the the very outside of the ball and mm-hmm. i'm trying to cut it as fine uh, as finely as possible it's almost like peeling an orange or if you imagine there's like a rail a rail running right along the outside of the ball to basically swing your racket along that rail and try and cut it as fine as possible that's what i focus on for slicers 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Gotcha. That's that's fantastic, uh, Tyler. Appreciate that again. And uh, just curious, you know, are you uh, your platform or pinpoint stance on your serve? Uh, platform. Uh, did Did you ever uh, Did you ever tinker with that or anything? Yeah, I tinkered with it all the time, and honestly, I think I tinkered with it a little a little bit too much. Where I, I sometimes I'll serve the platform, and then sometimes I'll, I'll bring my I'll bring my foot up. Right now, I'm kind of a little in between, where it's still technically platform, but uh, my feet aren't that far apart, but um, yeah, it, it hasn't made hasn't made too much of an issue. Uh, hasn't been too much of an issue for me. It just if I want a little stability, I go platform, and then if I want a little extra power, then I'll go pinpoint. Nice, uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that like uh, on the whole, if you're having trouble with your service, probably better to do platform because there's like less moving parts and things like yeah, that. Exactly. And, and and it's weird sometimes. Um, I'll actually revert to pinpoint, but I'll notice I did that because like my toss was crappy or something. But um, <laughs> in any case, it's good good to know. Um, yeah. So yeah, now now on to just um, you know you're you're playing and training in college. I'm just curious if if you don't mind like talking about maybe a typical day of of practice in college, like what what that was like. Yeah, sure. Um, so our practice changed quite a bit in my in my four years at Yale and uh, at least this year our basically our schedule was always we would practice from three to six uh, three hours a day and uh, starting this year we did this new structure where the coaches essentially would pull out students from uh, from uh, from practice to have private lessons and everybody else would be on their own basically to try and work on whatever it is that they felt that they needed for the game and I thought that that was a significant improvement because I think that every player has uh, has a different game and every player has different strengths and different weaknesses. And to try and make a cookie-cutter mold where everyone on the team is working on a specific drill isn't necessarily the most efficient way to, uh, to run practice. And so this way, having people come out for private lessons, you know, the coaches can focus on, oh, player A really needs to focus on getting the ball deeper or player A really needs to Add, uh, add a couple more angles so they can spread out the court a little bit more because he's a naturally a big hitter or something like that. So it's a lot, it's a lot more specialized. Mm-hmm. And plus, once you, once you get to a certain level, I mean, you know what your game needs to go to the next level. You don't need someone to tell you that. And so even if the coaches aren't there, for example, I knew that I needed to maybe rotate more on my back end or something like that. And so like, I, I, knew, I knew and I'm, I knew that my teammates also were aware of what they needed to work on their game. So the extra freedom really a lot of people that focus on what they needed to. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a great approach and it actually blew my mind. Cause I mean, I was, uh, you know, I played uh, D one college tennis for uh, university of Maryland, Baltimore uh. County. Um, uh, and then I, I talked to Brian Bolin from UVA on the podcast, uh, a few episodes ago. And then he said that, you know, they did both individuals and then they did team practices. And so I think it's great that, you know, provided your school, uh, has the resources that they can like take you individually and, and work on your game like that. So that's great. You know, obviously, you know, in Ivy leagues, I mean, Yale, uh, it's a lot of uh, a lot of work, I assume. I mean, I haven't gone to Ivy League school, but how difficult was it to uh, balance your studies uh, at a type uh, top Ivy League school with playing Division One tennis? Um, honestly, I think people make it out to be more than more than it really is. <laughs> I mean, like I, I definitely had those finals periods and midterms periods where I wasn't sleeping very much and I was cramming for a test and. You know, we just happened to have a dual match that weekend, and so maybe I was a little tired from my dual match. But it really probably only happened maybe one or two times a year. And so, if there's any prospective Ivy League uh, Ivy League student athletes out there, it's really it's really not as hard as people make it out to be, as long as you're even just semi on top of your work. You know, as long as you don't leave everything until the last day, it's really it's really not as bad as people think. Yeah, I mean that's great to hear. I mean, there's like you said that perception, but I'm sure you're you know organized and like you know pretty persistent and uh, you know did your studies when you could. So that's great. Did you did you ever have to like study in the van or anything like that or on the plane? 
Uh, I know a lot of my teammates did, um, but that was always a, uh, a no-go for me because, <laughs> well, for, yeah, first of all, I, I get really bad motion sickness as soon as I read a couple words on a on a plane or on a car, so I just I just physically could not do it. But also, even when we're at hotels and stuff, I mean, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of college guys, you know, everyone's goofing around and everyone's you know like messing around and stuff. So it's it's tough to focus on schoolwork. So I always I always left my schoolwork for before a trip or after a trip, and I always plan accordingly. Nice, nice. And uh, what, what was your major at Yale? Mechanical engineering. Nice. Yeah, that's that's no joke. That, that's that's fantastic. Um, and so I guess to back up to a bit more of the tennis now. Um, how much uh, like off court training did you do there? So like you know the weight training and agility sprints. Like I know when I was there, we did it like we did maybe two days a week of weights and like three three days a week of sprinting or something like that. So how was the ratio for you guys at Yale? Uh, yeah, I think, I think ours was, uh, something pretty similar where we had through my four years here, we've always had basically two days a week of, uh, of lift in the varsity gym. And then we'd always, maybe not three days of sprinting, especially since our season is basically spanned the entire year. But while we're in season, maybe sprints like, uh, like once or twice a week or something like that. But uh, I've, I've always, I've always been, I've always been a fan of agility and sprints. And I think that's, uh, definitely a huge, uh, huge help for people's games but i think that at least for people at our level weight training is a is a little bit overrated i think it kind of stems from my time with uh with taylor dent where i was uh, you know i had like a physical trainer and stuff growing up in juniors and like that was a big thing where i'd go maybe twice or three times a week and get some fitness in and maybe lift a couple weights and try and be stronger and stuff like that but one time taylor was just like honestly like at your level the time that you spend at the gym, like your skill, your skill level in tennis is not high enough for the opportunity cost in the gym to be higher than the opportunity cost uh, on the court. Like you playing that extra hour of tennis makes you not only also better, maybe not as in good of a shape as it would in the gym, but your forehand might be 5% better, 10% better come, come match time. And the opportunity cost of spending that extra time on the court was a little bit higher. So that's, that's always been my take on it. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, take. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I think uh, you have to just be very smart about how you train as well. And, like, obviously it's very important to, you know, like, stretch and do preventative stuff. But, yeah, I mean, some people might, like, take it too far or just, like, do a bunch of, like, bench pressing and stuff, which don't necessarily translate to the court. But, yeah, no, that, that's good yeah. to hear. Um And so, obviously, you've had, you know, been there uh, at Yale for four years, but... Uh, can you talk about maybe let's say the lowest point in your college tennis career and and how you were able to overcome that? Uh, the lowest point in my college t- tennis career is a uh, very very defined for me, and it was uh, it was the spring of my sophomore year. And the first part that I was struggling with was um, was expectations for myself because I had a very successful freshman year and I won whatever like a couple awards for my for my freshman season and I expect myself to come into the uh my sophomore season also basically win nearly all of my matches and be a and be a top level Ivy League player. But over my spring break trip I was I'd been playing pretty badly for a while but it really uh really hit the hit the peak at the um I guess hit the traffic. Um anyways at the uh over my spring break trip in California where we played three dual matches and I lost all three singles and all three doubles. And then I came back from the spring break trip when we played St. John's and I lost doubles again and lost singles again. And so I was basically on this massive losing streak going to Ivy League and I was just thinking to myself, oh my God, like the Ivy Leagues are already uh, are already probably my hardest matches the entire year and I'm going in and I cannot buy a match to save my life. I have like no idea what I'm going to do. My teammates expect me to come out here and win singles matches for them. My opponents and uh, other coaches expect me to, to be at the same level, if not better than last year. And so I was definitely very, very, uh, very nervous going into going into my spring, uh, my sophomore Ivy League season spring. But I think what what really helped me was I basically put my head down and went in for extra practice a whole bunch in the two weeks leading up to the Ivy League season where before I practice every single day, I'd go in one and a half hours early to hit extra serves and take extra fees. And then my very first match in the uh, in the Ivy League, I was playing a, a pretty good player, Nicholas Podesta from Penn. And I distinctly remember every single point in the uh, every single point in that match, thinking to myself, uh, like this is your point, and this is like I'm going to win this. And maybe 
Uh, maybe it's on his serve and he has a higher chance of winning it, but that maybe I only have 10% chance of winning this point, but 10% chance is something that I'm willing to fight for for every single point. And eventually I was able to pull it out 11-9 in the uh, third set match tie break, and that was wow. a turning point for me. And as soon as I won it, everything actually turned around and I started playing better again. Wow. Wow. I mean, that that's amazing. I, I love hearing stuff like that. You know, it's, um, just shows how resilient you are and, and, uh, it's great because, you know, when you put in the work like that, then that's, that's what gives you a lot of confidence too. It's just like, you know, I, I know that I, I've trained as hard as I could and now I'm just going to like do my best out there and, and let the rest take care of itself. So, uh, you know, definitely a big congrats, um, on that. Um, also kind of curious about the dynamics with like, with having teammates where, Obviously, you all want to do you have the best interests of the team, but then you're you know competing for uh, starting in the lineup. Uh, you know, again, Coach Boland from UVA said, um, I believe that they don't even have like they they don't have their players play against each other. They just kind of like gauge who's best and like everyone knows who should be playing what position. Um, but how was it? I mean, did you observe like any sort of like issues or anything with like with that dynamic of players trying to start but also like uh, supporting the team? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think every team kind of has to go through it because it's inherent in the uh, in the sport and competitive nature of all these guys. I mean, everyone obviously, if you're on a college team, you're playing at a high level, and you expect yourself to be uh, to be playing at a high level, and you want to be able to contribute and, and, and get points for the team. So I think it's inherent in every team, in every team structure. Through my experience at Yale, I've I've definitely seen it numerous times, and I've definitely seen people handle it better than others and some people handle it worse than others Mm -hmm. and um i think that how they handled it was a uh was also a good indicator of how they performed when they were actually given the chance because i mean let's say you get somebody who's been working their butt off the entire year and they think that they should be six but maybe they're over spring break they're slotted at seven obviously they're super disappointed but if they still have that same attitude and they come out to practice and they're still just as excited to practice still trying to get that forehand bigger, still trying to make that stuff more accurate, then that's a good indicator that when they are given a chance, because you're al- you're always given a chance and opportunity at some point, that those are the people that are going to step up and perform and be able to walk down their spot versus you get somebody who's so disappointed and they're like, oh, you know, just like throw it away and like start, maybe start mailing it in practice for a week or so. Um, they're all, they, they happen to be the ones that when they are given an opportunity, they don't perform quite as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, you know, another statement that I really love there. Um, I think, you know, everybody who's on a team should kind of like take that in. And, uh, you know, if you have the positive attitude and uh, keep training instead of like complaining, you know, you just waste time when you complain and, and, and energy and yeah. things like that. Um, so everyone, everyone gets an opportunity. It's, it's, whether it's sooner or whether it's later, in my experience at Yale and from what I've seen, every, everybody gets an opportunity to prove what they're capable of at some point. Yeah, for sure, Tyler. So, um, you know, again, a memory question. Like, out of all the matches you play and things like that, what's your most memorable, uh, you know, experience uh, as part of uh, Yale tennis? Uh, it's a tough one. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of matches over four years. Um, I'd say three stand out in particular. The first one would be sophomore year. Um, beating the Harvard number one. And the reason is because we had the same coach back in California and I <laughs> always wanted to beat him. And that was a big reason why I chose to yell, yell over Harvard actually, because like I wanted to go to college, beat him basically. Wow. And uh, so when I finally beat him and he was an all American in an NCAA single semifinalist, it was a big deal for me. And uh, so that was, that was definitely a, a big moment for my college tennis career. Uh, the other two would come this past year. I think the first one would be, uh, First one would be when I beat the uh, when I beat Cal, and I think uh, it really gave me confidence to think that I I can do something on the tour when I decide to go because he's like a top ten or top fifteen whatever college tennis player, and clearly a very good player, and I was able to hang with him and and, uh, and take him out, so that was a big confidence booster. And then the last one would definitely be my uh, most recent college match where I beat Columbia, and uh, obviously the Columbia player is fantastic. He won Ivy League Player of the Year last year, but uh, the reason it was special to me, at least, was because I had a lot of my alumni fans there watching in New York City, and then um, being Player of the Year was was a big goal of mine for for a long, long time. And uh, 
if you, if you do contact John, you can let him know because he uh, he never got player of the year. Team he went six and one, I think, but never got player of the year because uh, someone went seven and zero. Oh. <laughs> I, I always wanted to get I always wanted to get player of the year and uh, and one up him, but uh, also it was just like a goal of mine for a very long time. And so me being the Columbia guy brought me to seven and zero oh and basically clinched the uh, player of the year award also. That's awesome, man! Congrats on that. Um, and so, what I love about you as well, Tyler, is that you, uh, you know, you write uh, on the internet like I do. You have a, a blog at tylerlutennis.com, which everybody should definitely check out. And on that, you wrote a piece about the importance of confidence and how you believe that that's one of the biggest difference makers in the success of the teams. Uh, you know, in the Ivy League conference specifically, and obviously, I'm sure it applies everywhere. So, can you kind of walk us through like your thoughts on that, on why confidence is so important for tennis players yeah uh i think that if you go to a uh, a junior tournament and the even in the 16s you know you'll you'll get some people that i mean you'll get a lot of people really that are capable of hitting a clean ball capable of hitting a good ball it's just that some people have more confidence in themselves and have been practicing longer and are able to execute more under pressure and it it exemplifies itself or manifests itself in an even greater way uh, as you move up higher on the on the skill ladder, and you get to eventually you get to someone like Nadal and Federer and Djokovic, and you ask yourself why are these people able to consistently beat other top five, other top ten players? Because honestly, like every every single one of those guys has every single shot in the book, and they can pull it out whenever they want it and whenever they want to. So why does Federer or why does Djokovic you know, consistently win those big matches? And in my opinion, at least, it comes down to confidence where even though, you know, Federer is, is very humble and tries to and tries to deflect praise and he prays on his opponent and same with Nadal and Djokovic, I'm sure that those guys all believe that they are the greatest player, greatest tennis player to ever walk this planet. And I think it's necessary for, for the game. And uh, if they did not believe that and they questioned themselves in that moment when it's like in a close tiebreak in the fifth set, then they would not be able to step in and say, you know, like, I am better than this guy. I deserve to win this match. I'm going to step in and nail this forehand down the line because he left the ball a little short. And I really think that biggest indicator of that was the uh, the matchup between Fed and Nadal where it got it got to the point where Fed honestly just did not believe that he could beat Nadal. And I think he actually said in an interview also where he's like, yeah, honestly, like on clay, like I don't, I don't think I can beat Nadal. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you think that way, it's, it's basically done. There's nothing you can do about it. And I think a great way of seeing how you, you can turn it around is obviously he took uh, six months off or whatever it was and he tooled his backhand to be more aggressive. Came out to the Australian Open and had a close match from the doll, but still managed to beat him. And I think that was kind of uh, almost like an epiphany for him. And the next two times he played him, he basically just slapped him because he had found that confidence needed to execute in the moments under pressure again. Because really, like, even at, even at the college level, how many, if between two good players, maybe it's only three, four, or five points in an entire match that separate, and you have to be able to execute at those three points. And so the only difference is that somebody has more confidence in themselves to, to go for that shot or to do the, or make the right decision. Yeah, I mean, it's excellent, you know, analysis and viewpoint there. And I kind of related to, like, when you said that in that match against the, uh, I think the pen player, you, you said that, um, you, you just told yourself, like, I'm, I'm going, uh, I deserve every point or I'm going to win every point. It's almost like, you know, when you have, when people are confident, they, it's kind of creates this, this, uh, mindset of like, you know, I, I'm supposed to win this point, you know, like I'm supposed to beat this yeah. guy. So then it, you just, you just do it. <laughs> Most yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, like I, what I wrote on my blog, at least it was against the Columbia guy, by the way, but what I wrote was basically that I had spent obviously my senior year, a big focus of mine was to try and improve my serve. And I had spent so many hours out at the tennis court alone before or after practice, just practicing my out wide serve. And so when I stepped into the line, I had the confidence in myself. I was like, I just spent probably close to 40, 50, 60 hours over the, like over the semester, just practicing this serve. Like <laughs> I can hit this serve. And so I knew in my mind that I could hit it. And so when I stepped into the line, I had, enough confidence in myself to not just try and get a first serve in, but really try and pick a point and really go after it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Cause you know, again, for, especially for like a lot of the players listening here, probably like between three, five to four five, it's like, if you are not hitting a particular shot well or something like that, you have to ask yourself, have I 
how long have I really practiced this? Am I really practicing my returns, you know, for many hours per week? You know, probably not. So, um, at least, you know, you got to practice it properly, of course, but, um, yeah, it's great insight. Appreciate that. And so obviously you're at a point now, I mean, you're, you're graduating, I think on May 22nd. So congratulations on that. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's very, sure. That's very exciting. But, you know, you're going to obviously uh, turn pro, which is super exciting too. And what kind of factors did you consider when deciding whether to go pro or not? Uh, well, I, I think it's like like all big decisions in, in someone's life. There's a lot of factors that go into it. You know, like am I how am I going to be able to pay for this, or do I still think I can improve? Do I do I even still like to play? Will I still like to play when I'm traveling thirty weeks a year and it's my it's my life and my my income? And um, those are all questions that I spent a while uh, spent a while thinking about. And uh, luckily, I think I do think I'm still able to improve, largely because I've never really had uh, a structure where I could just focus on tennis. You know, like growing up in juniors, I I'd spend at most like two hours a day playing tennis on a good day. And then in college, obviously, um, academics was a, uh, was a big deal. I spent a lot of time on academic studying, so I haven't really had a had a had a chance to just play tennis and focus on tennis and see how good I can be. So I definitely still think I can improve. And, um, yeah, and honestly, uh, uh, probably the biggest determining factor is that I'm just not ready to hang up the rackets yet. I mean, I think that's kind of an advantage. Me starting late was that, is that I still love it. I got, I had a lot of friends that burnt out juniors and just done and didn't want to practice towards the end. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like every time I go out, even if I'm not playing well, I just, I still enjoy the feeling of hitting a tennis ball. And uh, as long as as long as I know that I still love playing tennis, and every time I go out, I'll have fun. Then I think uh, then I think that oh, that I I think that I can go out and basically be the best tennis player that I can be. Yeah, they, that makes a lot of sense, Tara. That's awesome. And so I'm guessing I was going to ask you, you know, so what profession would you take up if you didn't decide? I mean, would that probably be like a mechanical engineer then? Or <laughs> uh, uh, no, actually. Uh, I I did major in mechanical engineering, and the reason is because I've always liked to build stuff growing up, and I do find the material very interesting. But uh, no, I don't I don't think I'd be an engineer uh, engineer when my tennis career is over. I think that uh, while my time at Yale has been uh, very eye opening for academic pursuits and other pursuits, I think that it was even more so in the fact that uh, I saw just how much I enjoyed tennis enjoyed sports and how much how much of a difference it can make in someone's life and so if uh in the event that my tennis career is done at some point later on i would uh love to join some uh some sports industry in some, some fashion awesome man yeah that sounds great uh you can definitely impact a lot of uh, people's lives doing that as well um and so i guess obviously you know uh, uh itfs and stuff like if you're starting at the futures tournaments like you know, they don't pay out too much and stuff and like finances is a big consideration. So, I mean, how have you kind of figured out or like planned out like financially, uh, you know, a game plan for like handling like all the travel costs and all that stuff? Yeah. So, uh, my brother has been a, a big help with this and his, uh, he's very invested in my, in my tennis career and he loves it. And, um, basically together we created a budget for an entire calendar year to, create a theoretical estimate of how much we would need. And I think our estimate came out to something like uh, $45,000, $50,000 per year, which is obviously a very, very large sum of money to, uh, to put into something. And so um, I obviously cannot do that myself, and my family cannot uh, completely support that either. And so a, um, what I've been doing is basically reaching out to uh, Yale alumni and seeing, uh, seeing if uh, successful Yale alumni are willing to basically chip in and, uh, and help donate because it has been uh, quite a while since a yeah, professional tennis player has done well on tour. Yeah, and I think that's that's you know definitely eye opening, and I really appreciate you you know diving into like the numbers and stuff like that because a lot of uh, you know viewers and everybody they they really they know that it's kind of tough, but they don't know exactly how tough it is, and so I'm sure you know. Uh, that a lot of uh, Yale alumni and other people will support you, and so that's that's great that you're uh, you know thinking about that uh, the finances. I'm just curious, did you use like I mean Google Sheets or Excel or or what did you use for that? Yeah, Excel. Yeah, we basically took like the uh, tournament schedule from 2016 because obviously the ITF only releases uh, the tournament schedule a couple months in advance, so it's a little hard to use that. So we just 
went through the uh, 2016 calendar and used like theoretical tournaments to try and budget out. Oh, like if we have to leave on May 7th, let's look up exactly how much it's like cost on May 7th or on September 8th or something like that. And then just write down all the costs, write down string costs, write down everything, and through the spreadsheet, comes up with a theoretical projected estimate for how much I would need. Right, right. And then also one other uh, question for that is like, obviously, you know, you can choose to play tournaments domestically, but you can also choose to like, uh, you know, get points like in other countries. Maybe there's like, obviously, there's other countries where the draws are, um, you know, weaker and stuff. I mean, what's your overall approach to this and like picking which tournaments you're going to play? Um. I think that a lot of American players approach this in the incorrect way in that a lot of people with, with good reason assume that domestic tournaments are cheaper than uh, cheaper than international tournaments. But it's not necessarily true. And the reason is because hotels and flights uh, within America are quite expensive compared to other countries. And so maybe if I go to Illinois to play a tournament, yeah, Illinois is not as far as way, far away as China, but the hotel at Illinois maybe costs four times as much per night. And then the flight, uh, the flight to Illinois and then the flight to Texas right after the flight to Texas is probably also double or triple the flight, the flight from one part of China to the next part of China. And so as long as you, as long as you don't go to like Asia or go to Africa or go to some place for just one week or two weeks to play a tournament, from from what I've from what I've seen, you save money by going to places because the daily costs are so much less than what they are in America, and especially in my case because I speak fluent Mandarin, it's, it makes sense for me to um, to go to Asia and uh, because I can get around. And so it's if I go to Asia and I play for four weeks, I, it's honestly cheaper by uh, by not a small margin uh, than it is to play four weeks in America. Yeah, I mean that's again like wonderful insight. Uh, for any uh, players who are like thinking of, uh, you know, planning their tournaments and things like that. And there's also like a really good, um, uh, documentary or I guess like vlog series with this guy, player Alexander Donsky, I think. And he's from Bulgaria. And like uh-huh. at, at every episode, uh, he like, the, he tallies with his, his friend, like, uh, who's the producer, like the amount of money that they spend on food. And sometimes it'll be like yeah. one, one week of food, like, 20 euros or something so i mean yeah and hotel costs so yeah i mean definitely see what you're saying there that's fantastic um and so i mean do you do you um have any goals that you've set for yourself for like let's say the first six months or first year or anything like that or you just uh you know kind of go into it and see what happens yeah i uh, try not to set a numerical value because i think that you can maybe miss a goal or achieve a goal and it's you not that weren't necessarily there. Like maybe I got lucky and did well at tournament and got to X ranking, but probably my level isn't at that level yet. Or maybe I am, but I just haven't gotten a chance to go out and really travel and play tournaments yet. So I try not to set a numerical value, but uh, my goal is that um, after one year on tour and being able to focus on my game on solely on tennis for one year, that I can uh, consistently win two, three rounds out of futures and consistently get to like the semis and I get to a final and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm, you know, with your mindset and talking with you today, I'm sure you can definitely do that. Um, and so will you be traveling like with a, cause I'm as it's expensive, but with, with, with a coach or anything, or, or would you just mostly be going by yourself or with Austin maybe, or. <laughs> I'm sure Austin would like to join his, uh, his photo's idea a bit, but unfortunately <laughs> has a job. So uh, <laughs> he has other, other, other duties to take care of, but. Uh, yeah, so my my uh, figure of forty five thousand fifty thousand dollars a year is actually not including a coach, and I I just honestly don't I think coaching while it would be extremely helpful is just a luxury that I cannot afford at this point in my career. Maybe uh, if I reach a, a certain ranking, that maybe uh, like a national federation would be willing to give me a little extra money so I can uh, help get a coach, or if maybe you get to a certain point where you need a coach in order to try and take a take a step further on the tour, but. At this point, I think it's uh, kind of a kind of a luxury that I, that I can't afford. So I won't be traveling with a coach, but I definitely will be trying to travel with, uh, with some of my other friends that are playing pro, whether in Asia or whether in America. It's always uh, it's always helps to save costs and also practice. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you like, uh, if you decide to open up like the donation stuff, I'd be happy to put it on the show notes or whatever. So just let me know about <laughs> that for sure. Um, 
But um, so as far as uh, like, well, I guess you haven't gone um, played any yet, or maybe you have. But what do you foresee like your current? I mean, or your your practice and training routine to be like uh, on the pro tour? Have you kind of thought about what that would be like? Yeah. Uh, so I've had a bit of a taste of it in the uh, the one or two weeks I had since uh, I finished up my my last uh, academic schoolwork. But, um, yeah, I think I'll have a lot more time to basically focus on details where, you know, when I get up in the morning, I actually have time to maybe get in a yoga session or meditate a little bit or make sure I drink enough water rather than get up and be like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to be late to my, my like, math class. And then I, like, throw on clothes and have to go to class. And then maybe after after practice, I'll have time to, you know, spend a full 20 minutes or 30 minutes stretching and then maybe do a little extra fitness or something like that instead of being, like, finishing and being like, okay, the dining hall closes now. I need to go to my dining hall. After that, I need to go to my discussion section. I have to get my homework done like tonight because it's due in two days or something like that. So just overall, I think I'll have a lot more time to pay attention to the details, try and get the right amount of sleep, try and get the uh, right nutrition and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be wonderful to be able to focus on on tennis full-time. I feel uh, feel the same way, you know, like because I work and stuff, and then like on the weekends, I'm like, <laughs> yes, finally I can focus on the podcast or whatever, like, you know, full-time yeah. for the weekend. But yeah, that's that's fantastic. So I also got a few uh like I guess random questions for you. I mean, you're a real smart guy and I'm yeah, I'm sure you've read like a ton of books. Um I don't know if you read a ton of tennis books, but what are three books that you would gift a friend to help them uh, improve their tennis game? Three books I would gift a friend. Huh. Well, I don't I don't read tennis books at all really, but <laughs> uh the one yeah, the one the one that I can think of uh my mind currently would be uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, and while it's not necessarily associated directly with tennis, I think his idea of the 10,000-hour benchmark of, you, at the very minimum, you need to put in 10,000 hours to become a master of some level or something, I think is a, is a good concept to have in it. And while I do think that Malcolm Gladwell and his book and his podcast sometimes oversimplifies things, uh, I think that it is a good approach and a, a concept to keep in mind when trying to work on trying to work on something, whether it be tennis or basketball or music or really anything, anything in your life. As far as other, I don't have any other book recommendations, but if an amateur is trying to improve their game, the best piece of advice I think I could give would be to, um, to honestly watch YouTube videos. There's so many, not necessarily highlight videos, but like if you just watch a video of Gofan practicing or watch a video of Djokovic practicing, you know, those people obviously hit extraordinarily clean balls and they're always on balance. And this is basically what I do in my free time all the time. I just watch them practice and try and figure out what do they do differently than me and what, what about their stroke is so special or so compact that makes it so that they are capable of hitting a cleaner ball than I am or capable of hitting a more balanced shot than I am on a consistent basis. Awesome stuff. And speaking of pro players, uh, do you have a favorite tennis player of all time? Uh, definitely better. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah, it's freaking legend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, another question for you. I mean, obviously, like I said, I love that you blog. Um, what made you decide to start a blog? Yeah, uh, I think there were uh, several several factors in it. I think first, the uh, the probably the most important factor is that you know I am dedicating X number of years of my life to doing something that. I love and doing something that I've always dreamed of doing. You know, I think a lot of people grow up like, oh, you know, like I want to be an NBA star. You know, I want to be like some famous band or something like that. And I get a chance to do it. And that's not something that a lot of people are lucky enough to have. And that's actually something that um, my brother told me when I was trying to decide if I wanted to play or not, is that he said that he would feel disrespected by me if I did not give it a shot because I was actually in the position to try and chase something that I truly loved and had dreamed of my entire life versus he felt like he was kind of uh, like directed onto a certain path and he never felt that door open for him or that opportunity come. So he said he would feel disrespected if I let that chance slide in my fingers. And I, that was a big moment for me where I was like, damn, you know, like, all right, like maybe, maybe I should give this a shot and do my best to do what I'm capable of doing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's always been my dream and it's a way it's a blog is a way for me to document and uh and basically make sure that you know, like forty years down the road when my memory is starting to go, like I still remember and have things to look back on and photos to look back on and I'm writing to show how I felt after a match, you know, like I was pissed that I got you know, the line just didn't call the ball out that time. So it's, just, it's a way for me to doc it's a 
way for me to document my my time on tour. And also, um, the other one is just just for like reaching out to other people's purposes. I mean, like I read Jason Jung's blog, and I yeah. really look up to Jason Jung. I'm, I'm also Taiwanese American, and uh, you know, like if my career path followed the same path as his, I'd be more, way more uh, than just satisfied with my career. So, you know, like his blog. Uh, made an impact on me uh, in my in my view of tennis, and so I'm sure there are a lot of other people out there who are maybe looking at Ivy League tennis, especially as the Ivy League become increasingly stronger and um, more and more people start to uh, start to look at Ivy League tennis as a legitimate competitive option. Now there's there's probably a lot of players that are looking at Yale and looking at you know Harvard, and a lot of players that are also trying to turn pro as well. And maybe my blog can be a resource for those juniors and college players that are trying to uh, try to take the next step. Yeah, wonderful stuff. I mean, I uh, interviewed Jason Jung as well, uh, pretty much like large part because of his blog and really enjoy reading that. And, and you know, all, all of us uh, follow pro players. We really love reading the insights. So definitely excited to to read your blog as you progress uh, up the rankings and everything. Um, that's awesome. Uh, Tyler, where can we kind of uh, follow you online? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have the... Uh... The website pretty much has everything. Uh, my brother played a big part in setting that up, and honestly, it's, uh, it's amazing. I'll, I try and uh, I'm definitely going to try and keep my blog my blog uh, updated fairly often. It also has just like um, it has my schedule on it. it also has a, a map function my brother added to show uh, where exactly in the world I am currently uh, playing tennis or training. Awesome, Tyler. And any uh, last pieces of advice that you can give to our, our audience to like uh, you know help them improve? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, I think uh, it's, the advice is different for people in uh, in different stages. But if there uh, if there are any prospective juniors out there, you know, it's it's, it's definitely never too late to uh, to put in the work, and it's always uh, it's always better to to think about the the long game and to not worry about if you lost that match. You know, like it doesn't it, it doesn't matter if you lost that match in the 14th or not. What matters is come 18th. You know, like if you're if you're able to beat that guy. And so always uh, always think for the. Uh, I guess I'll always trust the process and love the process would be the uh, would be the easiest way that I can put it. That's a great one, um, Tyler. I just want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the Tennis Files podcast and also for being flexible. I hit a bunch of uh, terrible traffic, and you were nice enough to uh, push back the uh, interview a bit. So I appreciate that, and uh, thanks again to Austin. And yeah, I just want to wish you the best of luck. I mean, uh, it sounds like you're on a headed on a great path so looking forward to seeing you succeed and we'll definitely i'll be uh, rooting for you so i appreciate it tyler thank you man thanks for having me and i really appreciate it as well thanks tyler all right i hope you enjoyed my interview with tyler i really appreciate him coming on the show today uh, and i also really appreciate it if you guys would subscribe to the tennis files podcast uh, you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash itunes or you can subscribe through whatever app you use to listen to the show and I'd like to end this uh, today's show, as I often like to do, but forget sometimes, uh, with a quote. And today's quote is from Leo Buscaglia, and he says, Change is the end result of all true learning. Love that quote. All right, I appreciate you joining the show today and listening, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.